For those of you that don't know me, I am the youth pastor here. My name is Pastor Kelly. And it's so good to be back with you guys after a long time, feels like a long time away. Uh, We had, as a youth, we've had a wonderful summer scattered because we've been away over the last six weeks. Our missions trip went so amazing. We definitely experienced the answer to many of your prayers. Uh, It was just a wonderful time. And we'll be able to share more of that with you folks, I think, in October is when we get a chance to share about the trip to Pelly Crossing. Uh, For this morning, however, I have the privilege of being able to uh, continue our series in Acts as Pastor Steph is away, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, We're going to talk about a tale of two temples today. We all love a good story, right? Uh, Fiction, non-fiction, if it's well-crafted, it's just enjoyable to read. Many of us have um, read authors who make you feel like you're right there. That's when you know you've got a good author and you hope that they have a series going on. For example, many of us have read C.S. Lewis and we're familiar with the Narnia series, especially The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. How many have read the books? Quite a few of you. How many of you have seen the movie? Quite a few of you, right? It's a great, great story. And You can enjoy The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe on multiple levels. As it's written at face value, you have that wonderful story of the four siblings who are playing hide-and-go-seek, and Lucy climbs into a wardrobe and falls through the back of it into a magical world of talking beasts, and there's an evil winter white witch who's got eternal winter with no Christmas, and then along comes King of the Beasts, Aslan, and he saves them all, and it's a wonderful story. But of course, we read also on another level, the allegorical level, and we can see the salvation story woven throughout. And the children represent us, and Aslan represents Christ, and in order to save Edmund, he lays down his life on the stone altar, and then he rises from the dead and gathers his good forces and does away with the evil forces, and peace reigns. There are many stories and many plays and many poems that are like this, where the authors write to their audience on more than one level. And the more we understand the author and their context and where they're coming from, the more we connect with their intentions for the story. It's enjoyable. It expects a certain level of connection with the audience and understanding between them. It would seem that the book of Acts is written in this way. It's in this category of of writing. And I guess it's no surprise, really, when Luke has the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we have a compelling story here about the apostles, an historical early account of the early church, and it's kind of like our origin story. There is more going on here than just the face value of the story, though. There's a meta-narrative here that's part of the whole story of the Bible. The overarching story of what God is doing from Genesis through to Revelation. Acts is a part of the larger whole, and it's an important part. And we're going to look at that today. In our passage today, we're going to take a look at the face value of the story, the compelling, exciting historical account of the start of the church. And then we're going to look at what Luke, the writer of Acts, is trying to tell us through the story and the way he has written it. 
And then we'll get to see how we are a part of the story. Luke was an intelligent author. He wasn't just telling a story. He was carefully making an account of something extremely important that happened in the world. And he's speaking to his audience, us, on multiple levels, just like C.S. Lewis did with, the work of, with his work of fiction. So let's take a, a look at the story firsthand and its factual account. It's a good story. We have protagonists, the apostles, and we have the antagonists, the Jewish leaders. We have a prison rescue in the middle of the night by an angel, and we have moral defiance against corrupt authority despite the threat of death. And, spoiler alert, we have a last-minute stay of execution. It's quite thrilling and inspiring. So why don't you turn with me to Acts 5, and if you have your apps, bring them out. If you have your Bible, bring it out. We're going to read from verse 17 to 42 in Acts chapter 5. And we're going to have one of the youth, Josiah, is going to read for us today. And we're reading from the NLT version. Okay, I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 42. The high priest and his officials, who were Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail, and brought them out. Then he told them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple, as they were told, and immediately began teaching. When the high priest and his officials arrived, they convened the high council, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. Then they sent for the apostles to be brought from the jail for trial. But when the temple guards went to the jail, the men were gone. So they returned to the council and reported, the jail was securely locked with the guards standing outside, but when we opened the gates, no one was there. When the captain of the temple guard and the leading priests heard this, they were perplexed, wondering where it would all end. Then someone arrived with startling news. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple, teaching the people. The captain went with his temple guards and arrested the apostles, but without violence, for they were afraid the people would stone them. Then they brought the apostles before the high council, where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, he said. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles re replied, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, who is given by the God to those who obey him. When they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while. Then he said to his colleagues, men of Israel, take care of what you were planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was a fellow, Theodos, who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was, was killed and all his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee, 
He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and his followers were scattered. So on my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, they, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. The others accepted his advice. They called in the apostles and had them flogged. Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The apostles left the high council, rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message. Jesus is the Messiah. Thank you, Josiah. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. And I just pray that as we spend the next few minutes looking at it, you would soften our hearts, open our hearts, open our minds. And Lord, if there are those here that are hearing about forgiveness of sins for the first time, God, would you stir in them and, and draw them by your Holy Spirit to new life. In Jesus' name, amen. So, such a great story. Today's passage opens with the Sadducees, this religious group. They're frothing at the mouth. They're filled with jealousy at the apostles who in their mind are becoming way too popular and gaining a following. I can just see them calculating. These guys are gaining way too much political clout. They have got to be shut down. So they arrest the apostles and throw them in the public jail. And that night, the angel, an angel frees them and tells them in verse 20, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. What a wonderful way to phrase it, this message of life. So as soon as the sun comes up, the apostles obey. They head to the temple, probably Solomon's colonnade. That's where they'd been hanging out. It's like a, a porch or a balcony, they describe it as. And that's where the people knew to meet them. They had been gathering and seeing miracles of healing and hearing preaching. And, and so that's probably where they went. Now, the temple in that day was really big, the temple complex. You've got to think, it's not a building. It's like Vatican City. It's huge, and it's multiple buildings, and just because there's a crowd over here does not mean that people arriving are going to notice them. So over here, Solomon's colonnade, we have the apostles preaching and teaching early in the morning. And somewhere in another place, we have the high council arriving to meet for court because they're planning to try the guys who are in the public jail. This is the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court. They're like the Supreme Court. It was made up of 72 leaders of Israel, and they had different parties and factions in that group of people. We had the Pharisees, for one, who were considered doctors of Jewish law, the scriptures. And we had the Sadducees, they're rich, they're aristocrats, they're, and sprinkled throughout all of these groups, we have priests. They met every day in the temple to make big decisions. And this is the group also that had weeks or months before condemned Jesus and took him to Pilate and stirred up the crowd to demand crucifixion and to take responsibility for that. So this is the group waiting for the prisoners to arrive. Instead, they get a message, panicked message from the jail. 
these guys aren't in there. It was all locked up. Everything was normal. We walked in and nobody was there. Where is this all going to end? And then somebody else comes in. Those guys are here and they're preaching. They're doing exactly what they weren't supposed to do. And they're in Solomon's colonnade. The guards collect them diplomatically. They want to keep their heads. And they present them to the council. Here, Peter and the apostles preach again in Acts for the third time in five chapters. And the message hasn't really changed. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. There is forgiveness of sins. We have to tell our people. There is nothing you can do to persuade us otherwise. This was the proverbial straw for the high council. These guys had to be dealt with permanently. They needed to die. Enter Gamaliel into our story. Not everyone in the old temple is blind and unaware of the hand of God moving. Thank goodness. He asks the apostles to step outside. Closed door meeting. Have you ever wondered how Luke knows what to write next? How are we privy to this next conversation? It helps establish veracity if we can figure that out. We have several options, actually. Gamaliel himself could be one. He may have been interviewed by Luke later. Maybe he already believed in Messiah at this point. Maybe he's like a double agent on the Sanhedrin. I don't know. He is sainted in the Orthodox and Catholic churches. I don't know. A very likely option is that it was Paul, still Saul at the time. But we know in Acts 22, verse 3, that Paul was a student of Gamaliel. It's very likely that he was there in that chamber assisting Gamaliel. And we see him not two chapters later when he's presiding over the stoning of Stephen. So we know he's around. It could have been Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus, both Pharisees who we met in the Gospels who were friends of Jesus. Nicodemus met Jesus at night secretly. Joseph of Arimathea, it was his tomb. He took care of Jesus' body when he died and put him in his own tomb. So we know there were people on the Sanhedrin who came to believe in Jesus. Acts says there were many priests who came to believe in Jesus. So it might have been somebody we don't even know. We had lots of options. Gamaliel is known to history as having been the president of the Sanhedrin for a number of years. Everyone respected him. Because of this, in our passage, he's able to persuade the rest of the council to ease up on the apostles. And he's essentially saying, hey, you know, let's not make martyrs out of these Jesus followers. We've already killed the leader. Let's see if the followers disperse and become forgotten, just like in these other situations. Then we'll know it was nothing, not of God. But if it is of God, you don't want to fight him. Let me ask you, is that what happened? Did Jesus go the way of Theodos and Judas, a forgotten rebel who simply died a criminal's death and his followers dispersed? Well, if he had stayed dead, that's probably what would have happened, and we would have no idea who Jesus was in history. But he rose from the dead. 
in a real physical body and spent time with his disciples and then commissioned them to go and tell the world who he really was. The fact that we are worshiping here today, 2,000 years later, with approximately a billion people around the globe today, I'd say testifies to it being otherwise. I'd say we met the Gamaliel challenge. God was on the move by the power and presence of his spirit in his people's lives, and nothing could stand in the way, not even the Jewish temple authorities. So the apostles live another day to preach and teach. The first martyrdom would come soon enough. Instead, they were flogged and they left rejoicing that they could suffer for Jesus. They went straight back to getting the message out, the message of life to the people. And the story continues to this, to this day with many people around the world still, sh still sharing the message of new life in Jesus despite the risks of persecution and political pressure. Now on the surface, this looks simply like a story about the apostles, an historical account. But Luke is also wanting us to see Jesus entirely throughout his work. He wants you to see the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in the early church, the spread of the new creation through Messiah's people, the new temple. It is no mistake that the setting of the last few verses of Luke and the first few chapters of Acts are set in the temple. The temple is a key part of what's happening here. It was central to the Jewish life and religion. To help us understand why, we're going to go right back to the beginning. John Walton, Old Testament professor at Wheaton, he reminds us that Genesis, the first book of the Bible, was written to the ancient Israelites as their origin story. They were the first audience of Genesis, and we need to try and read it through their eyes. Genesis 1 is written like the building and inauguration of a temple in the ancient Near East. So we could summarize it perhaps like this. In the beginning, God created the earth as his temple, a place where he could reside and rest. And in his temple, he put his image, his image bearers, humanity, to take care of his temple. The earth was God's temple, a place where heaven, God's space, and earth intersected. And God could live there with his image bearers and have a relationship with them. This is how the ancient Israelites would have understood the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. And then in Genesis 3, something goes horribly wrong. The image bearers decided they wanted to be God himself. And they broke their relationship with God by disobeying him. They tried to set themselves up to be him. And so they had to be cast out from God's presence. Sin and death became a part of humanity's reality, and they could no longer live with God and interact with him. Creation was cursed as well, and it was hard work simply to survive as a human. What a bleak existence. We see the reality of this today, still. We see brokenness and evil all around us. But God doesn't want to leave humanity in this state. 
fast forward from creation time to the nation of Israel. He chose a family through which to reveal himself to the world again and to rescue it so he could restore and renew his image bearers and live with them once again. God established a covenant with them and had them build a tabernacle, a portable temple imbued with images of creation. It was like a mini earth representing what God had originally intended for creation, a microcosm of creation as his temple, if you will. And in that place of worship was a very special place called the Holy of Holies, a sacred space that could only be approached once a year by a ritually clean high priest where he would sacrifice animals on his behalf and all of Israel to ask for the forgiveness of sins. It was there in the Holy of Holies that heaven and earth could overlap once again. God's holy presence could come and dwell among his people, the Shekinah glory in the tradition of the Jewish teachers, God's spirit. It was actually visible to the early Israelites by a fiery cloud. God promised to live among them and bless them as long as they obeyed and loved him. Sounds somewhat like the creation story, doesn't it? But again and again and again, Israel sinned. And eventually, after giving them so many chances, God's presence left the temple, as we see in Ezekiel 10. Once God's protection was lifted from Israel, the Babylonians came in and destroyed the temple, and the Israelites were taken into exile. Yet even then, God was promising to restore them and send them a rescuer, a Messiah. In fact, the rescuer would be for the entire world. Isaiah said he would come in the form of a servant. Ezekiel said one day the temple would be restored. And in chapter 47 of Ezekiel, water in this new temple, water comes trickling out and grows and becomes a river of life. And it goes out into the world, creating life where there was death. Jump forward again in time to Jesus' day. The temple in Jesus' day was what they called the second temple. A portion of it was built and dedicated in 515 BC when they returned from exile. It wasn't very great. And then later, Herod, King Herod, he decided to build a lavish extension, which was finished in 20 BC. This second temple was still the center of Jewish life and worship. They were still hoping that God's glory would return but it hadn't yet. Jews came from all over the world on a regular basis to worship here. And even though it had been prophesied, to this point in time, God's glory had not returned to the temple. There had not been a prophetic voice in Israel for over 400 years when Jesus came along, and they yearned for their Messiah to liberate them from their bondage to Rome. In our passage today, when the apostles were led out of jail in the middle of the night by the angel, and he said this, th he sent them to the temple. This was the temple to which they were told to go and preach the message of life. Why? Because the people needed to hear that God's glory had returned to the temple. It just wasn't in the form they had expected. Think about it. God 
dwelt in Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is God. Heaven and earth overlap in him. At the same time as a man, he's also the image bearer. A true human, as we were meant to be. In John 2, Jesus comes and he's in a, he's in a righteous rage and he's clearing the temple with the whip. You remember that? And the Jewish leaders challenge him and he responds with a challenge. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. He was referring to himself. He was the temple of God. The place on earth where God dwelt. Then in John 7, 38 to 39, Jesus was in the Jewish temple and he just suddenly stands and he shouts to the crowd, anyone who is thirsty, come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Verse 38 is in brackets, explaining. When he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. Jesus was speaking about that prophecy in Ezekiel 47 of the river of life coming out of the temple. Here, Jesus is standing in the physical temple, prophesying that he is the source of the river of life, the new temple, and that his spirit would be given to everyone believing in him, making us the new temple as well. Luke tells us in the last chapter of his gospel that after Jesus ascended, the disciples spent all their time in the temple praising God. And then in Acts comes the day of Pentecost. A rushing wind and tongues of fire settle on each head. Wait, what is this reminiscent of? Remember we spoke about the glory of God filling the tabernacle in the temple in the cloud of fire? We see God's promised spirit filling the new temple on the day of Pentecost. Messiah's people. Now that there was forgiveness of sins through Jesus, believers were washed clean and made holy. And they would be the new dwelling place of God instead of the holy of holies. We would be the place where heaven and earth meet by the Holy Spirit. The start of a new creation that will one day culminate in what God has promised. The new heaven and new earth and the bodily resurrection of the dead. On the day of Pentecost, Acts, recorded in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit returned to the temple to his people, the apostles preached in all the languages of the world. We went over this earlier this summer. Every tribe, tongue, and nation heard that Jesus was the Messiah. That day, 3,000 people initially believed in the fulfillment of Scripture. That the Messiah had come and forgiveness of sins was being offered. New life. Now the glory of God was in every believer as they were reconciled to God and received the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the life to come. But this preaching of Jesus being the Messiah wasn't a one-time event. Peter and the apostles kept at it in the physical temple. And there were healings, and more people believed. And Peter preached, and more people believed. How... Could they not be public about it? 
If you knew that thousands of years of prophecy and promise had just been fulfilled and that the anointed one had come, what would you do? It is now in Messiah's people that heaven and earth overlap because the Holy Spirit dwells in everyone who's a believer. Paul even says it flat out in Scripture that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The fact that all of these events that we've been reading about in Acts so far have been happening in the temple in Jerusalem is part of the fulfillment of prophecy. God is getting his people's attention. There is a great transition going on here. There is truth going on here. The message of life. God is no longer going to dwell in a building, but in his people. The old temple was never the real temple. It was a mere foreshadow. The Messiah has come and made this all possible through the forgiveness of sins. This is the whole point of it, of Jesus being the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. In Greek, it is Christos, Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. He is king. He is the anointed one in the line of David. By saying he is Messiah to their fellow Jews, they are proclaiming the fulfillment of prophecy. God kept his promises to Abraham and to David. The apostles preached to the people in the old temple, and I paraphrase, the Messiah was here and you crucified him. But it was meant to be so that you could have forgiveness of sins. Repent. This is the message of life. Receive it. When Jesus died on the cross, in the world of space, time, and matter, things changed in this world forever. As Jesus died on the cross, heaven and earth were brought together, creating the cosmic new temple. God was reconciling the world to himself. We can see that in 2 Corinthians 5.19. It's what Paul preaches. There was now forgiveness of sins. This was a fact about the way the new world was for the disciples. Rooted in the accomplishment of Jesus' death and revealed in his resurrection, then put to work through the Spirit in the transformed lives of his followers. At the moment Jesus died, the Gospels tell us that the temple veil in front of the Holy of Holies tore, indicating that it wasn't needed anymore, that the blood of Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. We could now approach God. But I think it means more than that. It means that and more. It also means that because of the forgiveness of sins, the presence of God could now spill out from the temple and be in his people. New creation spreading out into the world like the river of life from Ezekiel 47. This is the tale of two temples. Our passage today ends with the apostles rejoicing that they got to suffer for the name. And they continued to preach that Jesus is the Messiah in the temple and from house to house. You see, they begin to leave the old temple 
and start going out into the world because now they are the new temple, the true temple in Christ. And here is where our story enters their story. Asking Jesus for forgiveness of sins is not just about getting saved so that someday our soul can leave this world and go somewhere that isn't physical. It's about becoming part of Messiah's family eternally, of being made new, of being fully human, the way we were meant to be. That river of life from Ezekiel is still spreading, and it points to a future fulfillment of the physical new heaven and new earth together and ruled by King Jesus. And as believers, we have the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in us now, our counselor, our comforter, our teacher, a guarantee of when Jesus will return and the new creation project will be complete, including our bodily resurrection, in a place where Jesus is king and there is no more tears and no more pain and no more sorrow and no more death. We too are called to preach that Jesus is Messiah of the world, offering forgiveness of sins, bringing healing and new life both now and for his physical return. One way that we can testify to this is by taking communion. Jesus asks us to remember his sacrifice on the cross by doing this, by breaking bread together, by the common table. The bread represents his body, broken for us, given for us on the cross in sacrifice. And the cup represents his blood shed for us, washing us clean, making forgiveness of sins possible. And so as we take this today, we get to remember, we get to give thanks, and we get to proclaim that he's coming again. Pastor Jerry and Pastor Joe are going to come, and when Pastor Jerry prays, after that, then the uh, servers will come forward and receive communion, and then the band. And when the music starts, that'll be your cue to come forward, as we have usually done and receive communion. Take time to meditate on this wonderful gift we've been given. Come as you will and come to any of the stations. If you need gluten-free, come to the center and ask for it. Today we're going to end a little differently. Pastor Jerry's going to offer the benediction at the end. So when you've taken communion, just return to your seats and uh, we'll finish with a prayer together. Pastor Jerry, would you pray? Let's pray together. Thank you for Jesus, who through his body and blood ushered in a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you that we can come to you in freedom, knowing that the power of Jesus changes us, 
Father, this morning as we come to you, as we partake of the bread and the cup, I pray that you would speak to us about your work in our lives, how you want to change us and wash us clean. Thank you for this new covenant, for this new temple that you inhabit. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.